Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Cabillas. Today's episode is about the relationship between autism and perfectionism. We're going to talk about what perfectionism is, the root causes of perfectionism, why people with autism tend to be perfectionists, the different types of perfectionism, and generally recommended solutions for addressing perfectionism. All right, so defining our terms as we always do in the beginning. Okay, what is perfectionism? Perfectionism is the tendency to demand of others or of oneself an extremely high or even flawless standard of performance in excess of what is required of the situation. Now, in her 2023 article, Perfectionism, 10 Signs of Perfectionist Traits, Dr. Elizabeth Scott says that there, there are root causes of perfectionism, fear of judgment or disapproval of others, being raised by parents with high expectations, having mental health condition associated with perfectionist tendencies, poor self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, a need for control, and tying self-worth to achievements. Some other examples of root causes of perfectionism, ideal expectations modeled by advertising, TV shows, and movies, people posting pictures of perfection on social media, attending a high-achieving school, which I can relate to. Uh, the, the school that we both were at were, was very high-achieving. I taught AP, and I definitely saw a link between perfectionism and depression. So see our mm -hmm. previous episode about depression. Uh, we had a lot to say about uh, depression, and there is definitely a link between those two. Mm -hmm. um, cultural factors based on ethnicity and values of the country. Trauma from marginalization and stigmatization, working twice as hard to be seen as equal, and being employed in a high-achieving, competitive work environment. Blogger Sue Atkins talks about why people with autism are perfectionist in her 2021 article, What Drives Perfectionism in Autism and How You Can Help Your Child Cope. Some examples she listed are black and white slash all or nothing thinking, which means succeeding or failing, working is good or bad. Then there's attention to detail, more likely to notice errors and imperfections. There are social issues such as personal worth and approval from others being determined by doing everything right, including social interactions. Perseveration, hyper-focus on mistakes and imperfections, and lastly, communication difficulties. Holding high standards for themselves out of fear of asking for help, or asking for help meaning admitting that you are stupid or defective. In addition to perfectionism, people with autism can also have obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. In fact, 17% of people with autism also have OCD, but perfectionism and OCD are not the same thing, even though most people think they have a lot in common. The Cleveland Clinic's website specifically talks about the differences between perfectionism and OCD. Perfectionists have high standards of themselves and others. Perfectionism is a way for a person to feel in control. OCD is a mental health disorder that involves repeated unwanted thoughts or urges that causes a person anxiety. In order to reduce the anxiety, the individual performs compulsive actions or rituals. If they don't do the ritual, there's fear that something bad will happen. So the reason that people feel that perfectionism and OCD are similar is the personal expectation to do a routine or task perfectly, which causes hyperfixation. 
But the key difference between perfectionism and OCD is control around the behavior. People with OCD may want to stop their compulsive behaviors, but can't do so. They feel out of control. In contrast, perfectionists don't want to stop the behavior because it brings reward and gratification. We're not going to have time in today's episode to do a deep dive on OCD, but we wanted to touch on it briefly as it relates to perfectionism. Okay, so let's dive a little deeper into the different ways that perfectionism presents itself. In his book, Making Peace with Imperfection, Dr. Elliot Cohen states that there are generally three types of perfectionism. Self-regarding perfectionism, demanding perfection of yourself. Other-regarding perfectionism, demanding perfection of others. And world-regarding perfectionism, demanding perfection of the world. He also thinks that there are 10 specific types of perfection, which are broken down into those larger categories. So we're not going to go into detail in every one, but we want to cover a little bit of those. So the first one is self-regarding. So he has different subcategories of these. Uh, The first one is achievement perfectionism, never making mistakes, always achieving your goals, always the best at everything, complete tasks flawlessly. Approval perfectionism. Must be liked or loved by someone, fear of experiencing rejection or disapproval, worrying for extended time about loss of approval, overextending themselves to seek approval of others. There's moral perfectionism, experiencing intense guilt when they think they've done something morally wrong, believe that they are a bad person if they've done something morally wrong, ruminates about the perceived wrongdoing, extreme anxiety about making moral choices. And the last one in this category, control perfectionism. Anxiety about the possibility of not being able to control the actions or circumstances of others. Guilt about not doing enough to exercise control. Self-blame from perceived failure to control outcomes. And anger towards people or circumstances that they were unable to control. The category for other regarding perfectionism has three types. The first one is expectation perfectionism which is demanding rigid perfection of others in general or certain others with whom they have a relationship. The expectations are unrealistic, conditional, grandiose, burdensome, and demanding. Ego-centered perfectionism is when other people should always or almost always agree with your point of view, such as your beliefs, values, desires, interests, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then People with this type of perfectionism get easily upset when it comes to disagreements and discredits people who think differently. And the last one is treatment perfectionism, demanding that other people never treat them badly. Now, badly is perceived as unfair or unjust, unkind, inconvenient, unpleasant or painful, discourteous, difficult or taxing, uncooperative, critical, unaffectionate, and unethical. And then the last category is world regarding. With existential perfectionism, bad things must not ever happen to themselves, loved ones, or other people. This is on the basis of social injustice, trauma, death, sickness, job loss, etc. Neatness perfectionism is a high standard about neatness of an environment and good organization holds this standard to themselves and other people. The last one is certainty perfectionism, which is demanding perfect knowledge and assurance about the world, specifically about bad things happening. 
These types of perfectionists want a 100% guarantee that bad things won't happen. This book does a really great job doing a deep dive on each type of perfectionism, as well as solutions for each one. And by solutions, I mean journaling prompts, mm-hmm. um, you know, reflection questions. Um, I, as somebody who has struggled with perfectionism, got a tremendous amount of value from this book. And not only did it help me understand my perfectionist tendencies, but it also helped me to identify perfectionist tendencies in other people that were negatively impacting me. And, you know, as we were doing research for this podcast, you know, reading through this, I think people with autism have most of these perfectionist tendencies. Would you agree or disagree on that, Brett? I would think that that's really um, something that would come out a lot because of the desire to control your environment and situation because of feeling of being out of control or not being able to control um, your environment or your your situation. Uh, so yeah. I would think, yes, that definitely um, lends itself to perfectionist tendencies for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and it's not to say that every person with autism has every single one. Correct. Correct. But, yeah. you know, as I'm reading through them, I'm like, yeah, I could totally see a person yeah. with autism doing yep. that. that or that I met sense. a person that with autism sense. that does that specific type of perfectionism. I can, and, I, yeah, I, I can just imagine how difficult this would be um, to experience some of these things. Like the the last one, certainty, perfectionism. There is no way that you can guarantee that bad things will not happen. I just can't imagine um, the impact that that would have on a person. Yeah. Well, and going back to our previous two episodes, um, so we did two episodes on autism and anxiety and autism and depression, and we referenced um, Nick Dubin's work. And uh, we talked about how there are these maladaptive schemas and, you know, core negative beliefs that influence anxiety and depression. And I would argue that those same beliefs definitely create perfectionism. And what I was taught in therapy is that perfectionism, you know, it's not a mental health disorder. It's a coping tool Mm. for addressing anxiety, depression, and shame. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So it makes sense to me that if if you have a core maladaptive schema, um, a negative core belief system, these types of perfectionism are trying to address those core issues. Yeah. So, all right. So. Brett, does your son, Josh, have any experience with perfectionism? He described his challenges with perfectionism um, in two different ways. First, it was the homework, what he didn't want to do. And the second one was his artwork, what he wanted to do, which I thought was an interesting way to categorize those, those, those two things, because those are the sources of why He's seeking perfectionism from those two things are very different. So how did he seek perfectionism from those two very different uh, topics? Yeah, so it's, and it it goes to um, the previous categories, right? So what traits from the previous list relates Mm -hmm. to this? So the, the first one, I think, for the homework piece is the approval perfectionism, right? It's trying to please others. So the other, the other, you know, it's for one example is, you know, there's a point in time between, you know, first grade through third grade where writing is emphasized, right? Writing, 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 reading, reading, reading. And I mean, it's a huge marker for children in elementary school 
to pass certain tests at third grade. Okay, so here's Josh. Um, he's struggling with writing. And I'm telling him, I can't read your writing. His teachers are telling him, we can't read your writing. So between, you know, after third grade, fourth grade, into fifth grade, you know, he is really, really trying to improve his writing to the point where it's beautiful, right? Now it's beautiful. And so that was, we think, you know, I'm, I'm looking back now, that's approval perfectionism, trying to make sure that everything, and he would take his time writing, he would take his time with doing his letters. And he practiced really, really hard, and he gained, gained some um, approval from that and, and some, you know, self-assurances that, you know, I did a good thing, okay? I improved my writing. So nobody complained about his writing anymore. The other one is, um, I think it's self-regarding. So the art thing is, and this wasn't a specific category that I saw, but it's holding high standards for himself. Right. So whatever he is thinking that art is in his mind, what it needs to look like based on what he's seeing of other examples of art that he likes, he wants to mimic that, copy that um, and, and be as close to that as he as he can. And so that would be kind of a self-regarding perfectionist thing. It's not something I told him. It's not something anybody else told him. It's something that he himself enjoys doing and he had this mindset that i'm going to be good at this to this level mm -hmm. yeah and i think what what's important in the discussion about perfectionism is i think for the most part parents are not putting that perfectionism on their kids or they're not explicitly saying that yes and yes. i don't think you know teachers do that too but i think right. that there's a a, a macro cultural influence or even mm. just like unconscious implicit biases or you know we mm. were talking about you know if if you go to a high achieving school and and fitting in with right. your peers is like right. everybody's high achieving and everybody has a nice mm. car and everybody comes from yes. a wealthy family right you know that i think that's why maybe to the outside world it it comes off as if um that person is putting that perfectionism on themselves, but perfectionism yes. is rooted in response mm -hmm. to an environment giving the impression that that person is inadequate mm -hmm. or that person yes. feels unsafe. Mm -hmm. And the perfectionism is a way to control themselves feeling safe and secure. Mm -hmm. Or an adequate in that environment. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. yeah you you want to, yeah, I, I totally resonate with what you're saying because in in that high achieving environment students are comparing themselves to each other all the time mm -hmm. right and they have these standards set for themselves and i can't tell you how many times in parent teacher conferences where the uh, the student is is struggling um, but it's an a, a student you know the work is getting harder and it was easy in middle school and elementary school and all of a sudden it's not as easy anymore and they're struggling right because they're not getting a's so we've rewarded kids throughout, quote unquote, rewarded kids throughout their um, elementary school, middle school experiences with this achievement, this A, whatever that means. And now it gets a lot harder in high school and they don't get that A and then that it crushes them. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they, they had, you know, linked to depression and all this kind of stuff. And now that you get in this spiral of, you know, grades are crashing and the parents can't figure it out. Why? Because they tell me to my face, I, we don't have that standard for our child. We would be happy with Bs. It's fine. But somehow our child is thinking, thinking that it's A or nothing, right? Yeah. So I, yeah. I could just see how, how 
all of this kind of resonates. Well, and I was going to add too. So uh, when I was teaching at a different school uh, than the one that we met and worked at, so I had a student, a neurotypical student who told me that his parents have an Alexa. And I don't want to say every day, but I think for sure, like once or twice a week, Alexa announces that child's grade as well as his siblings grades and they kind of i guess i guess their mindset is like if it's publicly known within the family unit like what the grade is that maybe it would motivate the child to do the work and and i don't know why this person brought it up to me um because he didn't seem bothered by it and i don't know if he talked about it as like kind of a joke like yeah, I can't get a B because like I can't hide it from my parents. But but as a teacher, I I, I just kept thinking like that can't be good for no. building a child's self-esteem. Oh, my gosh. I would hate, you that. know, especially like if you have a sibling who's like straight A student and then which, yeah, of course, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I just I can't. No, that would I, be. That I'm would sure be. It's, that would I'm be terrible. Sure it's so hard for parents to find ways to get you know, any child to to get their grade up. But I don't know, you know, you just wonder sometimes how accountability can go too far to create shame, which then can either create yeah. perfectionism or rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and yeah. I agree, you know, I, I, I enrolled in a, I would say pretty much every school environment that I've been in, including college, was some sort of high achieving suburban school. And then I taught in high achieving suburban schools. And, Mm -hmm. and I noticed how that culture impacted my mental health and how it impacted, um, I don't know, feeling secure about myself in the moment. And also, um, I think with the with the challenges of being autistic and always feeling like I had to fix myself in order to fit in, you know, to 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 fix yourself to fit in in a high achieving community yes. is really hard on people with autism. Yes, and I yeah. and I and I think as an adult, I started reflecting a lot about how that was really toxic for me. And when I say that, I am in no way, shape, or form saying my parents are bad. Uh, mm-hmm. that teachers were bad, that my peers were bad. I, I made a lot of really great friends in all those environments, but I think it, you know, it's a cultural thing. Yes. And so what I, I think sometimes when you realize that connection, that your environment is not reinforcing your mental health in a positive way, right. it motivates you to make different decisions and mm-hmm. mindful decisions. So, mm-hmm. so I, again, I have no animosity. I had a fantastic education in those environments with teachers that were extremely passionate. And I can Mm -hmm. guarantee those teachers were not promoting perfectionism, but it was, it was the culture and the demographic Mm -hmm. of the community that I was growing up in where, you know, my peers, they sought out high achievement or they had parents that sought out high achievement or modeled high achievement. Um, And I just, I just didn't want that in my adulthood. And yeah. so uh, and so I, I made those mindful decisions to remove myself. And then also um, when I was in my teaching license program, I started to not look at my grades. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and, and it's funny because as a teacher, it's like, 
you put so much work into feedback and grading mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and, and there's a part of me that's like, God damn, like you're not going to look at your grade. Yeah. But I think from the student perspective, for me, it was like, I don't want to get anxious looking at what my grade is. What matters more to me is how I learn and grow. Mm-hmm. And, and as also as an artist, do I feel proud of the work that I've made? Yes. And I, I do think it's important to check your grade just to see if you're passing. Mm-hmm. But I think that it got to a point where I trusted that I knew I was passing. Right. But it didn't matter to me what my grade was anymore. Yes. Um, and and I guess the feedback mattered more to me than what the percentage was uh, or the grade was. Um, yeah, so what, that, yeah. that was kind of my mindset with it. But But it's hard. I think young yes. people don't see that. And I think there are some adults who don't see that. Yes. And it takes a lot of self-awareness to create a non-attachment relationship with your product and getting approval or, or getting some stamp of achievement. It's, it's really hard. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the environment we're in for sure. Yeah. So going back to Josh, do you, do you notice the evolution of his perfectionism you know, from a kid to an adult? Or do you think that there was a perfectionism theme that was always there his entire life? I think, I think the answer is yes to both of those. So um, if we look back to, if I look back to him as a child, you know, he's, you know, those two themes are constant throughout his life, right? The approval perfectionism and the self-regarding perfectionism. His ability to comprehend um, those concepts himself have changed over time, but the existence of those things have not gone away. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in other yeah. words, um, he, he can rationalize now, okay, I, I'm doing this because I'm seeking the approval of other people. Do I really need to do this? And then the self-regarding thing, it's like, I'm, I'm still holding myself to high standards with my artwork, for example, because it's something I care about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I I will say from the perspective of being an art teacher, when I try to address perfectionism, um, it's so important to figure out how to problem solve. And I think Mm. when you're a perfectionist as an artist, you catastrophize, you, Mm. you do a lot of black and white thinking, you crumple it up, you throw it away, you get hard on yourself. There's lots of drama. Right. And, and I feel (laughs) like it wasn't until I started my teaching license where I started to have a lot more trust in myself as an artist where I would say, okay, it's not going the way I thought it was, Mm -hmm. but I have enough education and experience that I can problem solve through it. So, so it it is a very difficult skill. And, and even when I work with like adults that struggle with that same uh, self-doubt, I tell them it takes a really long time to learn to get to that place as an artist where you have faith in yourself that you can make, what seems like a piece that's not going to work end up working. Mm. Um, and, and I think that it's really hard for people with autism to get there unless yes. they get a lot of really good support and, and also somebody who understands how the autistic brain works. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I think we're going to get into this later, but um, the act of journaling and understanding your perfectionist tendencies is, is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also think, you know, from the perspective of art as well, 
um, you know, I was like this, my students were like this, where they would have a sketchbook where it's like every, every drawing was perfect. Every mm. drawing in the sketchbook had to be a work of art. But the point yeah. of a sketchbook Isn't is that bad. it's, well, it's supposed to be a safe place to brainstorm, to experiment. Mm. Mm. And I think what YouTube does, you know, when a YouTube YouTuber comes on and they go, oh, let's do a, let's do a tour of my sketchbook and everything's perfect. So here's this kid who's yeah, comparing themselves to like this professional artist. And it and has to be like, that way. Yeah. It has to be that way. And so what I told my students is, if you're going to have a sketchbook that's going to be your perfect illustration sketchbook, get another one that's going to be your crap sketchbook. <laughs> the right. one where you're going to destroy, you're going to experiment, right. it's going to get messy. Because that, that's yeah. the way that you problem solve is experimentation, yeah, play, true. curiosity. Yeah. So, so if you approach everything like it has to be the most perfect thing ever. Mm -hmm. um, You're going to be and, miserable. Well, and the other thing too, is like, I had a lot of, uh, in, in college, in art school, we had some exercises that were a lot more about, uh, you know, if you compare it to automatic writing, like just put shit on paper and see where it goes. Right. And, and sometimes that really helps get out of the perfectionist mind because perfectionism creates creative block. It just, makes you stop in one place. And right. so having the ability to just like be messy and put stuff on paper without a plan sometimes can kind of get you out of that mode. Yeah. And so I think it's really hard because, you know, artists with autism can look at their artwork and be like, oh, it's not good. And I can't, can't show this, yeah. but right. who cares? Like, um, no, I, I love it the, yeah. and then throw it away because it's not about creating a perfect image. It's about getting you out of that stuck yeah. place. No, I love that idea that it's um, their sketchbook is brainstorming because that that's that speaks a lot to it's not perfect. You're just getting your ideas out, you know, the concepts yeah. from, from brain to paper, right, is a process. Is it going to work? Right. What do I need to do? You're you're thinking of challenges to this piece. Where's the light coming from? What's, you know, what, yeah. where am I going to yeah. go with this? And so it, if you think about it and you tell students in that way, then it makes it, yeah, it's like, you know, when you brainstorm, it's not perfect. It's sloppy. It's messy. It's, it, there's yeah. full of mistakes. Well, but it, it's, it's evidence of thinking, right? We and, want evidence yeah. of thinking, not perfection in a sketchbook. I love that. Yeah. Idea. Yeah. And, and, you know, it makes me wonder, like when teachers know that they're in a high achievement school, mm -hmm. you know, when you're writing an essay, for example, how do you promote that sort of messy, imperfect problem solving? Like I think about automatic writing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess I just wonder what teachers can do in other subjects where they're promoting that, that safe space, not necessarily mm -hmm. in the classroom, but like in a notebook right. where the kid can just, you know, put shit on paper. And yeah. that's an important part of the process that, that they don't feel like, Oh, when I do an outline or when I brainstorm, it has to look perfect. Like right. just put it on paper and see where sure. it takes you, you know? So yeah. And AP classes, I mean, we're, we're getting off topic a little bit, but to answer your question, yeah. um, in, in the test environment, they have you know, 45 minutes to write an essay and you do not just crank out an essay perfectly right? You need to brainstorm. So there is a section in the, that test booklet where they're supposed to um, have a map, a story map or some concept map where they put their ideas down 
main topic, thesis, three major points, and then around that um, subset of facts that go with that points, and then they can write. Because nobody does a great job start to finish without doing any of that kind of brainstorming. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, yes, we did go off topic, but I, but I do think about like, if parents and teachers know that they have a perfectionist child or, you know, especially somebody with autism, you know, right. what are those things that you can do? Because again, you know, as we've talked about perseveration and we've talked about fixation, how do you snap them out of it? You right. know, and, and I think that there are very intentional activities where, you know, you can get them to snap out of it. Yeah, um, yeah. but exactly. we can. Yes talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. But mm -hmm. anyway, uh, going back to Josh. So are there any traits from the list we discussed earlier that resonates with the way Josh's perfectionism works? Yeah, like we said, it was approval perfectionism and self-regarding perfectionism. And like I said, the, uh, the holding high standards, that's kind of off. It wasn't listed on the previous topics, but I think it's definitely um, under that self-regarding, right? Holding high standards is definitely self-regarding. Okay. And then as a parent, how did you support Josh when he was experiencing distress in relation to perfectionism? So, you know, what I experienced and he experienced and what I noticed and what he showed me was the homework piece of it. I didn't see anything about his drawing. That was his own thing. And I was happy to, to let him do that because he would spend hours and hours and hours in his room just drawing in his notebooks he wouldn't want to show me those necessarily which is fine that was his own space so i didn't have any idea of what that perfectionism part of that was what i did see was the the homework thing right the approval perfectionism so one thing that we we did was um, we talked about homework and it didn't have to be perfect homework should be and and classwork in general should be your best attempt that's it best attempt and take the pressure off of perfect grades or scores, right? So, you know, I tried to communicate as best I could. We're, we're not looking for A's. We're not looking, you know, for, we, we'd be happy with B's and C's, right? And, and the grade is just one marker in time for one assignment. It's not the be all end all. There's other things that you do in class that isn't grade driven and celebrate those things. So, those are the, the kind of environment that I try to create for him so he wouldn't feel this need for approval from me that um, it has to be a certain way or the the grade has to have a certain outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I do want to make it known to our audience and, you know, both of us are former teachers. Right. We do not l look down on kids that don't get A's. You know, I, I think true. students come into classrooms thinking that if they don't get an A, that that's going to negatively impact the relationship with the teacher or the teacher's not going to respect them. Mm -hmm. I think good teachers that are passionate about they, what, what they do, they're not going to care about that. They, they want to meet the student with where they're at. And, you know, I've had students who are, uh, you know, high achievers, always get A's. You still want to push them. And oh, then if sure. you have a kid who, um, you know, is, always getting a C. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to meet you where you're at. And I'm not, you know, the goal is certainly not to push you to get an right. A, right. but it's about like, how are you growing? And are you passing my class? And absolutely, I, I've also had, you know, I remember I had a student who just like, he never came to class. 
Right. And, you know, I reached out to him and his parents and, and, you know, caseworkers, counselors doing the same thing and, and nothing ever happened. Mm-hmm. And when he did finally show up for finals, um, you know, obviously he was going to fail my class. And I could tell he was really scared about, you know, how I'm going to think of him. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and I said, you know, I'm just so happy to see you. Mm. Um, and he would. And I, I think that even though he was scared of like, how am I going to pass my final? I sure. said, look, it doesn't matter. I'm just happy you're here. Right. And and that that uh the the ability for the teacher to create a sense of safety for the child mm-hmm. and and to really make it known to the child that the grade is not a determining factor of right. safety in the classroom or safety in the relationship really makes a difference um for the student. Absolutely. Um and so I, I do think it's it's really important, I think, for parents to have those conversations with their children. Mm-hmm. And I think when appropriate, when it comes up, I, I think teachers need to have those conversations with students, because if you don't, you're ruminating in your head. And I'll say, you know, from the perspective of being autistic, I was told if my autism showed, there'd be collateral loss. Right. And so, you know, you know, I was afraid of of losing the respect of my teacher because mm. I was already getting bullied so much. And so, you know, that played a really big role in like how I showed up as a student. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it is really important that teachers are mindful that, you know, yes, there's demographic and, and cultural aspects of perfectionism, but also, you know, if, if a student has a marginalized identity, that's a very big part of how they seek perfectionism yes. and how they seek safety with the teacher. And so I yes. think teachers need to be mindful of that to assure the student that that's not an aspect of how they're going to achieve in that classroom. Yeah. I mean, creating a safe space is huge. It's a, it's yeah. a huge place because, you know, grades should be, you know, what what would the world be like? This, again, getting off topic, but we're teachers, right? We do that. Sometime, but what would the world be like with, if only if every grade grade if every grade in the class was either pass fail? That was it, and we created safe spaces in our classrooms to try and experiment on different things and to fail in different things and to embrace failure as evidence of learning. What would that be like? Well, yeah, and and when I taught, I I would teach my students the concept of failing forward, which uh, there's a book written by John Maxwell, who's a a leadership expert Mm -hmm. in the business world. And and I read that book and and it really made a very big impact on how I perceive failure and that Mm -hmm. essentially you determine how failure leads to success in your life. And so I, I always talk about that uh, in my classes. And I think when it comes to autism, so, um, for example, uh, you know, if I look back on all of the fear that the neurotypical people around me had of like, Oh, if your autism shows, you're going to lose your friends. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a very perfectionist standard. Mm. And, and it was scary, you know, because I felt like I had to have very perfect social skills so that I could have a social life. And to get my basic social emotional needs met. But when I read Failing Forward, the biggest thing that I thought about was if I lose those friends, which I did, Mm -hmm. what am I going to do to make that failure a success? And so uh, I remember when I was a sophomore in high school and 
it was just awful with my social life because all of the friends that I'd had since elementary and middle school, you know, naturally everybody in high school changes, you go to different groups, you mm -hmm. feel like you've outgrown people. Right. Um, and I felt abandoned by the friends I had, you know, some of mm -hmm. my friends were bullying me. I had a crush on a friend that mm -hmm. I think got freaked out and, and instead of having a conversation with me about it, just basically uh, ignored me, alienated right. me, yep, which yep. I'm still a little sour about. It's like, that's okay. not a mature thing to do, but, but it was devastating for me. And mm -hmm. it was the moment where I realized um, that it was so difficult for me to make new friends, but I wasn't going to let my autism hold me back from that happening. And so my dad ended up getting me this book called How to how to make friends and influence people. Mm. And that book changed my social life. Wow. And I just became a lot more active in my school community with mm -hmm. being able to connect with everybody. And, and the goal at first wasn't about making friends. It was about how do I make genuine connections with different types of cliques in my school? Mm. And, and to me, that is an example of failing forward. Yes. What do you do when things don't go according to plan? And, and I think that that's something that therapists and parents need to teach people with autism, because if we live in this all or nothing fear of yes. what if this happens, if your autism shows, it doesn't teach you to problem solve, be resilient and self-advocate when yes. those losses occur. And yes. whether you are autistic or not, those losses will occur. Right. You know, that's a, good, a great way to put it. Yeah. All right. So did Josh get any support or treatment to overcome any struggles with perfectionism? Not with perfectionism per se. We had uh, the, the things that we struggled with, with were meltdowns. Those were, that was the big all encompassing things that we had to work on, but not, not necessarily perfectionism. Would, uh, would Josh have a meltdown because of something that didn't go perfectly? Um, could be, yes, especially during um, the elementary school years where, you know, the approval perfectionism or the the willingness or the desire to please everybody, right? Um, the overstimulization of elementary school, the rules, all of that bound itself into one big mess of of expectations for him that he couldn't achieve, hence the meltdowns. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I have a I have a friend who has ADHD and he, his mom, who's an occupational therapist, told me that when my friend was five, um, I guess, you know, he was highly sensitive to approval and rejection. And and mm -hmm. I guess something happened with an adult. I'm assuming a teacher in his life where he interpreted some interaction with this teacher as like rejection. And so the mom told me he came home and he just got so worked up and, and before mm -hmm. the mom could even help him to rationalize, yes. you know, well, let's talk about it from the teacher's perspective, or let's talk about it from, sure. you know, a positive. It was like, he got ramped up so fast that he already started crying, already started having a meltdown mm. and, and, the 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 mom said this happened in a matter of like three to five minutes. Wow! And so it was really hard for her to intervene and respond. And and yep. so I said, you know, how did you handle it? And she said, you just got to give him a hug. 
because yes. they don't yes. feel safe. They yes. they go to that catastrophizing place so quickly. Yes. And so she said, the first thing you do is you console them, you comfort them. And then mm -hmm. once they're calm, you know, you, you start to talk to them about it. And then, you know, I think some parents going to the teacher and not like as a gotcha or, hey, you're in trouble or, hey, right, right, I don't right. like the way you treated my kid. But, you know, sometimes you need that supportive ally adult mm -hmm. to just uh, be there as a mediator mm -hmm. with the teacher to just kind of give a, a transparent explanation to the child of here's yes. what's going on. Right. And I think with with autistic people, when there is that fear of following those unspoken rules, that's why we catastrophize yes. and go into all or nothing thinking, because when the rules are not obviously there, we mm -hmm. start to create these these fantasies or these these uh, Im imaginations of what the rules are that yes. might not actually be on the table. And then we we ruminate, we feel mm -hmm. unsafe. And so that's mm -hmm. why I think that uh, that it's so important for the, you know, just for adults to get together with the child and just say, yes. hey, I want to hear how you're feeling and let's talk about it. And let me tell yes. you where I'm coming from. Yes. Um, I, I remember uh, I had that happen with a, a neurodiverse student, not on the autism spectrum, where she had really severe anxiety. And I thought that she and I had a really trusting, positive, safe relationship. Um, and then it was like the morning before the first class started. So the social worker, who I also had a great relationship with, he comes into my classroom with the student and and he goes, oh, can we talk to you? Yeah. And I said, okay, what's going on? And the student was just terrified of talking to me. And mm -hmm. it had something to do with like maybe disclosure about her mental health or, yeah. you know, advocating for an accommodation related to an assignment, which I kind of assumed that she and I had a good enough relationship where she could be open about it. But but I think right. there was that fear of being that vulnerable and then mm -hmm. catastrophizing of like, mm -hmm. oh, it's not going to go well. Mm -hmm. And so uh, and so that's where that conversation happened. So the three of us sat down in an empty classroom mm -hmm. and the social worker said, hey, this is what's going on. Here's how she's feeling. The student was very distressed and upset. Yeah. And, you know, the social worker and I were just very gentle and kind. Mm -hmm. And, and I said, you know, of course I'm going to support this for you. Yeah. And the student, you know, it was like, she started to get optimistic and she was relieved. And so awesome. even though she and I had this really good relationship, yeah, when you're that vulnerable, you become afraid, even with the people you trust, mm -hmm. are they going to, are they going to hold space for me? And you just don't know unless you be direct with them. Right. And and direct in a gentle manner, but right. but but to put it on the table and make it open so mm -hmm. that the person with autism knows, okay, I don't need to get in my head and and imagine what it is. This is actually what it is. Right. And just to, to dovetail on that, um, it was very helpful to go to parent teacher conferences with Josh because then he can hear, you know, the teacher's expectations and I can throw in my expectations and then he gets, oh, okay, you know, I'm over rationalizing this or now I understand or uh, now I have clarification on what I need to do and my behavior and, and those kinds of things. So yeah, I totally resonate with what you're saying in terms of 
you know, having allies, parent, teacher, is is important for the mental health of our children as they come to understand what their expectations are. Yeah. And that will remove a lot of these self-doubt and overthinking and um, perhaps perhaps perfectionist tendencies because you know we can celebrate hey you did great on this you gave but you know you gave good effort in this and math you know not a but that's great great effort you know what i mean yeah and then celebrate the good things and and so that can be hugely hugely important yeah yeah and i'll add to that too I think the way a teacher gives constructive feedback to a student um, mm-hmm. makes a very big difference in how Absolutely. that perfectionism tendency comes up. Because what I've yeah. noticed, and I think especially with like maybe preteen age students in particular, that one of the reasons that you you go into that perfectionist state is because you're afraid that the feedback you get is going to be critical, judgmental negative, you know, uh, affecting your self image. And we all have that fear, you know, even as teachers, when we get evaluated, you know, we get afraid of the language, even Mm. though we're not necessarily afraid of the feedback, we're afraid of the tone and the words that are used. And so I think that as you were saying in a parent teacher conference, when a teacher starts out with positives and then, um, you know, I'm very big when I give constructive feedback where I ask a lot of questions. I notice this. I wonder that right. um, rather than, oh, I noticed this and you, sh-, you know, don't yes. should on your students. Yes. Um, I think that 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 questioning, that inquiry, that seeking to understand when it comes to feedback, it makes the person feel heard. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Perfectionism is something that, you know, you don't recover overnight. But I think that being able to have communication with somebody in authority and really seeing that that person in authority is not as threatening as you perceive it to be does make a really big difference when it comes to perfectionism. Yes. Yes. I like the idea of getting the word should out of parent-teacher conferences. Well, yeah. I mean, parents and teachers, I think if... If a teacher notices a parent is shooting on their kid, mm-hmm. maybe the teacher can reframe it. And then that helps both parties. Right, right. Celebrate, celebrate your successes. Celebrate your strengths. Speaking yeah. of which, um, just to <laughs> wrap up Joshua's um, ideas here, um, perfectionist tendencies, is that a strength or positive asset? I would absolutely say yes in terms of his art, right? So he, that's something he's very proud of, um, something he's good at, and then so, you know something that's rewarding to him. Now, you know, to what degree is that? I don't know because it's his thing. Um, he still hasn't shown me much of his artwork yet, so um, I'm I'm curious to see where that where that's going to lead him in terms of career. If he wants to do a career or pursue that, that's going to be up to him. But um, it's definitely something that he's proud of. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's really important. Like my attitude with my work is, I do the best I can with what I know. Yeah. So. I think that some people are like, oh my God, I don't know what this is and I got to do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. I think my mindset is, I know I'm not going to do it perfectly, but I'm going to put 100% effort into it. Yes. So I'm not going to slack off and right. I'm going to be open to constructive feedback to, uh, it's not about perfectionism, it's about refinement. Mm. Um, and and refinement is a lifetime journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then there comes a point where, Sometimes you just need to look at yourself and go, 
I'm good. I'm doing yeah. good. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I uh, told my students, so when we would critique, uh, you know, so for our viewers, critique is where, you know, you discuss artwork and it's a very vulnerable experience for students that are perfectionists. And mm. for autistic students, the social component plus showing oh your gosh. artwork like that, that is just too much. And so I've had autistic students that have said, you know, I can't do this. I'd rather critique one on one with you. And I go, mm. that's fine. Um, but, you know, but they'll look at my artwork, which again, like I'm 32. I've been mm. doing artwork way longer than them. I have professional sure. college training. I I do realism. Well, I did do realism before I became a teacher. Yeah. Uh, and it looks photorealistic. Mm-hmm. And so, but then I show them my artwork from high school, which was, you know, cheesy anime artwork. It's mm. polar opposite. Yes. And and I talk about how, uh, you know, if I'm perfectionist or I, or I stay in my box and I, and I, tell myself like, this is my style and I'm not going to grow. Mm. You don't know what potential you get to. When I was in high school, I didn't know I I could do realism. And so I think that um, perfectionism helps with being detail oriented with, again, making sure that Mm -hmm. you're putting your 100% best work out to the Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Um, But there also needs to be a growth mindset because then you grow in directions that you never Mm. thought you possibly could. So I really like showing that to my students. And I also tell Mm. my students, save your artwork from age four, you know, whenever, whatever age you started creating work to today, because when we're perfectionist, we get so hung up on where you want to be and Mm -hmm. being disappointed with where you are now, but we never take time. Right. But we never take time to look at the past and say where you are right now is the perfectionist standard of whatever age you were when you were younger. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, for me, like my mom saved my artwork since I was four and I've, and I've looked at the trajectory yeah, and it's made me feel grateful for my growth. And mm. oftentimes that gets me out of my perfectionism because mm. I realize like I'm in a really good place right now and mm. I'm going to get to an even better place when I get older, or maybe yeah. I don't want to, maybe yeah. I feel like I've grown enough and I just want to make the artwork that makes me happy. Yeah. That's a great idea. You know? So anyway. Yeah. So, um, we've talked about my son. Let's talk about you, Nicole. So what has been your experience with perfectionism and what, if any of these 10 perfectionist types resonates with you? So the types of perfectionism that really stuck out to me, uh, I have approval, moral control, treatment, and certainty. And I'll break that down. So I have a lot of, I think, shame-based trauma around my social emotional intelligence and my social skills, which Mm. I think every person with autism goes through. For me, the way that I coped with that pain was social perfectionism. And I didn't realize that that was what it was until probably like three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the social perfectionism turned into a special interest mm-hmm. and, and I would say probably since I was 17. So when I was sharing that story about, you know, I read a book and mm-hmm. that book made a difference in how I felt confident interacting with people. So because of that reinforcement, I just started reading 
Um, and, and that type of education, it made me feel like I could control how people treated me based on like, I don't know, being the smartest, the socially smartest person in the room, if you will. Mm, I I think that was ultimately my unconscious goal. Um, of course, I think that, you know, when you're younger, you, you want to, you want to fit into those unspoken social roles. But I think as I got older and I was aware that I didn't like the way certain people were treating me and, and I had experienced teacher bullying and, Mm. and I, you know, I had experienced peer bullying and really painful stigma around my autism by people who I thought wouldn't do stuff like that. Mm. Um, then the social perfectionism became about, I want to mediate whatever happens so that I don't get hurt. I see. Um, and that's not, that wasn't healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that I've done a lot of racial equity training in the last like three years, and I'm in a, a graduate program in counseling. And I'm currently taking a class in that program called uh, Social Multicultural Foundations. And mm-hmm. what I have learned, and, uh, and and I think that this is really important for anybody in the autism community to know, unspoken social roles are not objective. They have an implicit bias, oftentimes uh, supporting a dominant group mm-hmm. and marginalizing another group. And so when I reflected on, you know, like if people said, you know, well, you need to hide who you are in order to right. get your social needs met. And, and I think that the social perfectionism was ultimately masking because I got mm, some sort right. of high off of people being like, wow, I, I couldn't tell you're autistic because you have great sure. social skills. But if you think about pe- members of the LGBTQ plus community, um, that are are expected that well if you're going to fit in you got to hide who you are Mm -hmm. or um you know certain people of color that uh you know you can't change your race but if you act white then you you tend to be more successful those are considered unspoken social rules but those are not universally beneficial or applicable to everybody So when I started understanding that the way that I was treated and the way that I was marginalized for my social emotional intelligence had nothing to do with my autism and had everything to do with cultural ignorance and stigma Mm -hmm. around autism, that's when I started really critically examining my social perfectionism. And I -hmm. I started to understand that it came from a place of trauma. Mm -hmm. And and it was a double-edged sword because when I would read about all sorts of social topics ranging from mindfulness, leadership, cultural responsiveness, um, you know, advocacy, if you will, yeah, it, it did it did matter. It, it did yeah. make a benefit because when I would read those things, I noticed that it was making a difference when I was teaching. And it created mm. safe spaces for my students. And then, of course, I, I got friends. I got respect in my professional circles. But mm. on the other hand, when you have people that tell you, wow, I can't tell that you're autistic. It's not because I'm not autistic. Right. It's because 
I'm putting so much pressure on myself. When you aim to be the smartest person in the room, ultimately that's a form of autism masking. Masking, yeah. Uh-huh. And so um, so that was that was really hard for me to come to terms with. And mm. and what I started doing in my my job before I, I left my career as a teacher is so for example, I had a coworker friend who made two comments about not only that I didn't understand social cues, mm -hmm. but I was the most socially awkward teacher at the school. Yeah. Now I yeah. have other yeah. friends and, you know, I had admin that not only said that is far from true, but also that's it still discrimi sticks with it's, you. Dis it's discrimination Yeah. because it's based on a stereotype and not what's actually modeled. And so I think a lot of people mask because if you're out, it doesn't matter how wonderful or adept your social skills are. People, people will always see you as a deficit and they look for those deficits rather than the strengths, because if they see a strength, they just don't think that you're autistic. Mm. And so if I look back on that interaction, the old me would have taken mm -hmm. it so personally and and ruminated on like, well, what did I do wrong? And right. what am I socially awkward about? And right. and and what am I bad, at? you know, and then I read and I hit the books and I and and mm. and it's a waste of time and energy. And then I'm sure. anxious and then my husband has to deal with me being like, okay, well, what did I do wrong and how do I fix this? Right. But the current me, the way that I responded in that moment is I said, that's a stigma. Mm -hmm. And and I and I think that this is true, not only for myself, but other people with autism. I said. I have a lot of social intelligence in certain situations, and I don't know a lot of things in other situations. Yes. And that is not a reflection of my autism. That is a reflection of being human. Yes. Yeah. And I think doing that protected myself from going into a shame spiral. Mm -hmm. And it educated that person that they have an implicit bias that's problematic. Yeah. And then that person has a choice. Well, do they, do they respond or, you know, do they, do they evolve their belief system mm -hmm. or do they stick with where they're at? Unfortunately, right. this individual stuck with his beliefs and that person is no longer in my life. Right. But I think that those were empowered decisions that, helped me to separate myself from that social perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And there have, there have been other things that I've done where um, I had people in my department that were critiquing things that I was doing that I felt were very hyper-specific. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I told them is I said, I need grace to be human. And I said, look, like I have a growth mindset. I will take constructive feedback. I have faith in my ability to do that, but I am not going to give myself so much stress and anxiety, hyper fixating on everything and trying to fix it in the moment. I said, mm -hmm. I will grow. You need to give me space and grace to grow at my own pace. That rhyme, that all rhymed, but yeah, no, exactly. But, but some people will hear you and they will say, "Wow, thank you for sharing." Yes, I will give you a bit more grace, and others won't. And the others that won't, they don't care to understand what neurodiversity is. Right. 
Um, and then when it comes to, uh, you know, people that said, you know, well, you know, if your autism shows, you're going to, your social life is going to be a collateral loss. Hmm. So for most of my life, a big part of my social perfectionism was about disproving, you know, well, I can make friends, even though I'm openly autistic. Well, I can't have a job. I can't have a significant other. Sure. So a year ago I got married and I had all of the things that these therapists said that I would never have. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I said, none of these def things define my worth as an autistic person. And yeah. I got all of those things because I was openly autistic, not because I hid myself. Mm -hmm. And so another way that I started to heal my so social perfectionism was to not have any emotional attachment to those fear-based moments. Because mm. for those neurotypical people, and I know it comes from a pace, place of love and care, right? but it also comes from a fear of the unknown. It comes from, we wanna protect you. We wanna make sure that you survive in this world that is not built for you. Yeah. But if you live in fear, nobody is gonna get educated about neurodiversity. Nobody is going to get educated about autism acceptance. Yeah. And that's why I have felt very, it's been vulnerable, but it's been important for me to speak openly about I'm not perfect when it comes right. to my social skills. None of us are. Yeah. We're going to drive, we're going to drive ourselves crazy if we do, mm -hmm. but it's not going to impact my quality of life. Absolutely. And, and it shouldn't impact my relationships with other people. And if it does, those people shouldn't be in my life. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, you know, the other thing too is like, I definitely struggle with moral perfectionism. And as I, as I start to understand, you know, what it means to be equitable and inclusive, like I have this fear of doing harm to others in the way others have done harm to me. Uh, when I've experienced stigma, um, I've gone into significant mental health distress. I've shame spiraled. I've mm. had intrusive suicidal thoughts. I am deathly afraid of doing that same harm to other people. Mm. But but the thing is, when you are born with certain types of privileges and you're oblivious to the way other groups have been marginalized, of course, you're going to make mistakes. And I remember that the biggest thing that shifted me out of that moral perfectionism, you know, the fear of like, well, I got to do research on how to treat people of color and how to treat members of the LGBTQ plus community. Mm -hmm. I was reading a book by Robin D'Angelo. She's, she's an expert about like white fragility and all that kind of stuff. And she said, it is impossible for white people to, to be perfect anti-racist. We are always going to have a little bit of racism in us. And for some reason, hearing that, hearing that I'm, I'm always gonna have a problematic part of myself and there's nothing I can do about it. For some reason that liberated my perfectionism. And you wouldn't think that that would be the case. You'd think, oh my God, like I can't handle that. And you know, you want, you want to be, you want to do good. But there was something about the acceptance of I'm going to do good and I'm going to do better, but I'm not going to be perfect in doing good. There's always going to be some part of me that's never going to get it. 
And to have that awareness because of something, because of a part of my identity that didn't have to do with my autism, didn't have to do with the way my brain was wired, that it had to do with a different part of my identity. Mm -hmm. It relieved me. And I took that relief and I realized I am never going to be a perfect social creature. Right. But that's not, but some expert is giving me grace to say, it's okay to not be that way. Right. And I never, I never felt like I had that grace. And so I guess I, I, I'm sharing this, not necessarily saying like, oh, if it worked for me, it's going to work for other people. Mm-hmm. But I do think, you know, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. Understanding racial equity from the perspective of being white liberated me uh, as somebody who felt marginalized for being autistic because I had these bigger picture understandings Mm -hmm. of complex social dynamics that had nothing to do with the way my brain thought. Right. Because the way that people with autism are educated about socializing is there are unspoken social rules. You don't understand them and you got to understand them. But socializing is incredibly complex. And being able to understand it from the perspective of equity inclusion and with the specific lens of racism. It allowed me to understand why my perfectionism came to be and how I could let it go. Yeah. And that's what worked for me. And so mm-hmm. I'm grateful to those programs that that promoted racial equity and promoted uh, white anti-racist education uh, to have it help me uh, step into my power as an autistic person and also um, as somebody who is learning how to heal from perfectionism. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and then the last thing I'll add is, you know, when it comes to certainty, you yes. know, when when you live in a world that is constantly overstimulating and dysregulating, mm-hmm. uh, it makes and sense that you want to have certainty. And especially, I think that that's a big part of the social perfectionism. To be the smartest person in the room means you have certainty of what's yes. going to happen and how you're going to address it. Or, uh, I don't know, if I take the example of mass shootings, you know, there was a shooting in Boulder at a King Supers, and then yeah. I got scared, like, well, if I go to King Supers, what's going to happen? Right. So then there was a part of me that's like, well, I'm just not going to go to King Supers. That's certainty perfectionism. Mm. It's it's trying to control the actions that you do so that you can avoid any possible adversity that you saw in the news. But what that ultimately does is it makes you a stowaway. It makes you stay at home. Mm. I, right. Still away is probably not the right word, but but right. it makes you hold up in your house mm-hmm. and you don't leave. Right. Because what what is certain is your environment in your house and in your room, which you can control. What you can't control is when you step out of your door. Yeah. Yeah. And and I do think that uh, when when those neurotypical caregivers said, you know, oh, well, if your autism shows these bad things should can happen. So don't be open Mm. about yourself. That's that's another example of certainty perfectionism. Mm. You know, well, if you do this, this, and this, this won't happen to you. That's not always a guarantee. Exactly. And so, yeah, so so I do think perfectionism is sometimes rooted within yourself, but it's also rooted in the ways that other people have perfectionism, which is ultimately Mm. run by fear. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so... um, 
What is your relationship with perfectionism in terms of your strengths and struggles? So I recognize that my perfectionism results from some good qualities in my autism, such as being a detail-oriented thinker. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we've been talking about art a lot. And the one thing that has fascinated me when I study autistic artists is all of them are really highly technical artists. Mm -hmm. They're very good at like architecture, like really complex architectural drawing, realism. Sure. Even with illustration, it's like, very detailed. Mm. And so I think that it's interesting, you know, to recognize that. The the other interesting thing is uh autistic people with more severe needs that are nonverbal uh tend to be very very strong with abstraction. And so it's fascinating to kind of as an artist like kind of see how the spectrum of the artistic uh artistic autistic brain creates yeah. artwork. So just putting that out there. Um, I appreciate that perfectionism and is an expression of my neurodiversity. Yeah. Perfectionism for better or worse has given me a lot of social skill tools when it comes to equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that my research, you know, I invest in it because I do think it makes a difference for creating a safe space for myself and creating a safe space for others. But that's a very different reason to invest in social skills education compared to when I was younger, I would invest in my social skills education so that I could blend in, right. so that my autism didn't show. Those right. are very two, two very different responses. Mm -hmm. I don't wanna invest in my social skills education to blend in right. and mask my autism. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I am a better communicator because I've gained so many social skills to compensate for my perceived weaknesses, quote unquote. Um, when it comes to task completion, I feel like my perfectionism has made me very efficient and productive. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say when I was in high school now, I don't know if Josh went through this too, but, but when you are really good at art and you know, you're always getting A's. like, I didn't feel like I was a perfectionist when it came to my academics. Mm -hmm. I, I just, you know, it was, it was the same attitude. It's like, I'm just going to do the best I can, but I'm going to put all my, all in my art. And mm. I always got A's. And then when I got to college, right. <laughs> things, things changed. changed. Yes. And I started, I remember when I got my first B, mm. I was so devastated and so confused. Mm. And it made me realize this is hard yes. because now I've got to step my game up. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really challenging. And so I think the first couple of years of art school is when my perfectionism really started to hit because mm -hmm. as we talked about when you're in an overachieving environment and you see who's getting attention and who's getting their artwork displayed. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a there was a toxic aspect of my department where uh, I had a teacher who called certain students the chosen ones. Oh my God. And they would always have their artwork displayed. And- Oh brother. I think from a teaching perspective, I don't agree with that because of course not. when I looked at my students, like, especially when I was picking my artwork for the hallway, I would always think about like, okay, I would write down which students did I display. And then for each project mm, moving okay. forward, I would then try to pick students who I hadn't displayed their work. And That's I would nice. be yeah. very attentive to students who, um, who maybe weren't, who were maybe struggling with art, who didn't identify as artists, 
the mm -hmm. moment their artwork got in the hallway, you can't believe how much pride they had. That's awesome. And so I remember I had a classmate who just never felt like she was good enough because she never got her artwork on the wall. And I guess like this teacher thought I was a chosen one, but it felt gross. It felt yeah catty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so it was one of those weird things where I felt, I felt very desperate to get on the wall. But then when I got on the wall, I felt, I felt weird about it because I felt like, well, what about the other people who worked really hard? How come they didn't get their work up? Yeah. Um, and so that that's where I feel like those overachieving environments can be really toxic for mental health and, and building perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, because of that, there was this shift where I went from, uh, you know, caring so desperately and like wanting to do everything well. Well, who cares? I'm not yeah. going to remember, you know, I don't remember when I got up on the wall. I don't remember which projects got A's. Sure. I do remember which projects got B's and C's, but it was humbling. I I think that uh, when I reflect on it as an art teacher, I go, yeah, like I needed an ego boost. Mm -hmm. I needed to be able to recognize that I had potential to grow and that right. I'm not going to be this, this absolutely perfect artist when it comes to like, oh, I'm going to touch clay and I'm going to make this beautiful work of art. Right. That's not my specialty. And, and that's when I started creating the shift of, I'm not gonna look at my grade because it's about how mm. I grow. And nice. if and if seeing that I have a B and C is gonna make me feel ashamed about not being good at a certain skill, mm -hmm. you know, I'm gonna let it go. Um, and so that that really helped. I remember actually, uh, I, I did get a C mm -hmm. on an art project. And that was like, it didn't make me angry. It was just like, wow, I really, <laughs> I really am not a perfect artist, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so I, I think it was just that attitude and perspective of like, nothing is going to be this amazing, mind-blowing piece of art. But what matters is you're showing up, you're doing it, you're learning, you're being receptive to feedback. Right. Um, now, I will say uh, I am perfectionist when it comes to crossing things off my to-do list. So mm -hmm. but even though I'm at a place in life where I'm, you know, like, especially with lesson planning, like I am not a perfectionist when it came to lesson planning. I, I, I had a good enough mentality. Mm -hmm. I knew that I wasn't going to do it perfectly as a teacher, right. um, which is so important when you're a new teacher, like you mm -hmm. cannot go into your classroom and feel like you're going to have it nailed. Right. You're, you're not it takes a lifetime. And, you know, even, even when you feel like you have it figured out, you know, technology changes, you know, the students around you have different generational mindsets. And so, so I had a mindset with my lesson planning where it was like, okay, it's good enough. But my perfectionism was, I have a list of things I want to do and I have high standards that I get all of those things done. So that's a, a different type of perfectionism. And to be honest, it, it's something I still struggle with. Mm -hmm. Um, and as I talked about before, it's really important when you're healing perfectionism or really thinking critically about it, about how perfectionism is rooted in trauma. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think that it was really difficult for me to recognize those things. But at the same time, I think that I'm there's a there's a moment of gratitude of like. Those bad things happening 
motivated me to learn skills that a lot of people don't have to be able to create safe spaces for other people. And so I don't look at perfectionism as a failure. I don't look at it as something that's toxic. I, I right. realize that it's not adding value to my life. But when I look at how far I've come mm -hmm. and what skills I've gained, I just feel a tremendous amount of gratitude of the positive things that came out of that struggle. Yeah. So, um, and, and then the other thing too, like, I think when it comes to the moral perfectionism, when it comes to approval perfectionism, uh, I've learned, the, and, and that's really hard when you're very selfless and you care about people or mm -hmm. you're afraid of being judged for being, you know, a socially immature autistic person. But I think that there's something to be said that like, if somebody judges my social skills, sometimes just saying, I don't care. Yeah. Um, sometimes that works because if, and again, like you, you don't want to do it to the point where you're oblivious to feedback. But when you have people that are constantly nitpicking at you because of that stigmatic stereotype yeah. of your, your autistic social skills, you just get to the point where sometimes you have to say, right. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not taking your feedback. And, and I don't think it's healthy to do that all the time. But every right. once in a while, you get to pick and choose. I think, again... It's so important that when you get feedback, whether it's constructive or negative, you have the autonomy to say, do I want to think about this and, and grow from it? Yes. Or do I just let it go and say, this isn't valuable to me? And I think that, right. that that's where I mean when you, right. it's a way to say that feedback is not valuable to my life at this time. And I'm not going to let that feedback make me feel ashamed about myself. Yeah, absolutely. How about your uh, parents and husbands? How have they reacted to your perfectionism? Um, so I think it's something people in my support system notice, but I think, you know, you know, some people, the perfectionism has a huge negative impact on relationships, you know, mm -hmm. because I, as we talked about there, there, there's the perfectionism of others or, you know, uh, as we were kind of talking about earlier, if a parent's like, wow, I don't have perfectionist standard of my kid, mm -hmm. but you see that that kid is in pain because of self-inflicted perfectionism. Yes, that's it, it does. It does impact relationships. For me, I feel like when it comes to my parents, the perfectionism didn't really negatively impact my relationship with them. I right. will say that uh, when it comes to finances, uh, I've had to... I've had a lot of, you know, perfectionism and anxiety and catastrophizing around budgeting and, sure. you know, financial literacy. And I have a financial advisor and she's been very good about letting me know, like, not everybody's going to do it perfectly, but you're doing it good enough that you're, you're financially thriving. Mm -hmm. And that's all I needed to know. Right. And, it, and it goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier about like, you make up these rules in your mind and you get afraid that you're not living up to them. But when mm -hmm. you have that mentor that says you're doing great, you're doing fine. Sometimes that's enough to kind of just let yourself breathe, release yes. it a bit, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so I think my husband, so he knows that I have anxiety related to perfectionism, mm -hmm. especially social perfectionism. Uh, I perseverate about social skills around him all the time. I've shame spiraled, spiraled around him. 
he's mm-hmm. been a very important aspect of me getting out of those mindsets. Yeah. Um, but I think that the most important thing, which it wasn't something that we explicitly talked about, but my belief as an autism advocate is my home life needs to allow me to be imperfect. Mm. I need to be messy. Yeah. I, you know, if I, if I clean the dishes, I don't need to, you know, I mean, do right. it, yeah, sure. but it doesn't have to be like immediately right now. Right. Um, right. Uh, you know, when it comes to like relationship communication, it's okay that we don't have it figured out, mm-hmm. you know? So, so I feel like the expectations in my home life need to be reasonable and flexible, uh, in regards to my neurodiversity. Yes. And so I, I've talked to my husband a couple of times and said, it's really important that my home life allows me to be as openly autistic as possible. Yes. And he's like, totally. Yeah. And likewise, you know, he has ADHD. I feel he needs to have that freedom, yes. you know, to be that, to be that way as well. Now, right. he's not as open and proud as I am. Sure. But I, but I think that it's important that like, if he's having an ADHD related struggle, or maybe there's a quirky ADHD moment that comes up that, you know, harmless, maybe kind of cute, fun, whatever, um, that he has permission to do that on his terms and that he doesn't feel afraid to express that part of himself because of how I would react to it. Right. Um, home has to be a safe space for sure. Yeah, exactly. And, and also like, because both of us are neurodiverse, um, we've done a really good job of like creating routines that benefit both of our uh, neurodiverse traits, you know, such as executive functioning. So to me, that creates that safe space. So then I don't have to feel this pressure of being socially perfect. Um, My parents, they've been really great sounding boards for me to process and problem solve social situations. Uh, and it depends on different things. I think my dad, he's a, he's a former CEO of a real estate company and Mm -hmm. he gives me great advice from like the business perspective, the, the professional socializing aspect. And my mom does a really good job from it, uh, from the interpersonal piece. Okay. Um, and so it's not like they do anything to intervene. I think that they just know I need to vent and Mm -hmm. give me advice. And that's, that's as far as it goes. Um, my therapists, I think do a lot more to intervene with my Mm. perfectionist tendencies, which is how it should be. I don't think, I don't think parents and significant others should carry that burden. Um, but I do feel like I, I have made some progress, um, doing therapy on that kind of thing. And so I'm really grateful to all the therapists that have worked with me on that. Yeah, that's awesome. So speaking of that, um, what has helped heal your perfectionist struggles? Yeah. What sources do you have? Um, so I did a lot of workbooks. Um, so one of them was, as we talked about, Making Peace with Imperfection by Dr. Elliot Cohen. And I will add, too, that when you have a stereotypical notion of perfectionism in your mind, you think like, oh, perfectionism about projects. You're a procrastinator. Uh, you're a neat Nick. Yeah. But the book that making peace with imperfection made me realize that there's a spectrum of perfectionism and that I was way more of a perfectionist than I thought I was. 
And so uh, I love that book. Uh, it was really life-changing for me. Um, then I, I had two perfectionism-specific workbooks that really helped out. One of them is the CBT workbook for perfectionism by Sharon Martin. And the other one is the perfectionism workbook by Taylor Neuendorp. And then the last one, which I talk about a lot, uh, especially in our last few episodes, uh, it's the book, The Healing Otherness Handbook by Stacey Reicherzer. And what she does so well is talking about how perfectionism is rooted in the pain of being othered. Mm -hmm. And she talks about five different rules of fear. So one of them is uh, you have to work twice as hard as others. Another right. one is um, tone it down. Mm -hmm. and, and, and when I was going through that book and I was doing the journaling and getting angry about the way I was treated, I realized how much of that perfection was rooted in the trauma of feeling othered. And so I felt like that book really helped me get a perspective on why my social perfectionism existed and how I overcome it. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I'm letting go of painful experiences that caused my perfectionism, mm -hmm. you know, giving myself more grace, setting better boundaries, surrounding myself with people that don't have um, flexible expectations about my behavior. And, and the other thing that I think was really helpful. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I got diagnosed with autism when I was two and I was put in a, a ton of therapy. And I would mm -hmm. say, if, if your child is in therapy eight hours a day, five days a week, I do think that that creates perfectionism. Mm. Um, because I think like, you know, because it's all about like something's wrong with you and you need to be fixed. Right. And then the kid doesn't learn, well, what parts of me are okay to just be me? When can I just exactly. be an autistic kid? Exactly. Um, but I remember that so much of my life was ruled around, how can I improve? How can I fix? How can I be better? How can I be perfect? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that that did is it made me neglect my body. Mm. And... I struggled in my in my job as a teacher. I struggled with my physical health and my mental health because of just nervous system struggles, sensory overstimulation. Yeah. And there came a point where I had to accept that my body was not able-bodied. Mm. And I hadn't really thought of myself that way that my entire life because it was all about striving to be cured, striving to be sure. normal, that sure. all that stuff. Fitting in, yeah. And so coming to a point where I realized, wow, my body is just never going to be normal. It's mm -hmm. always going to struggle. And, and when I say that, people are like, wow, that's a really like pessimistic way of looking at yourself. But no, it's about honoring my body for where it is and understanding that it struggles. Mm. And I shifted from feeling ashamed of who I was and trying to heal my body, trying to fix it to my environment needs to change to accommodate where my body is at this moment. And that's when I started giving myself more grace and advocating for grace. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, I, I mean, I think that all that therapy, it doesn't teach you to love yourself in the present moment. And that's what mindfulness does. It teaches you to observe where you are in the present moment mm -hmm. and not feel, compare yourself to the past or the future. Just be right where you are. Yeah. And that's that's how I'm I'm starting to overcome perfectionism mm -hmm. and especially just accepting my physical and mental health. And more importantly, 
putting that first over making friends, having a yeah. career, having a yeah. significant other. If, if masking my autism to get all of those things negatively compromises my physical and mental health, does it really matter at the end of the day? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So when it comes to discussing how to overcome perfectionism, there are a lot of different strategies and resources recommended online. We don't want to go over every strategy because that can feel overwhelming. Also, strategy resonates with everyone, especially people on the spectrum. Since Nicole got a lot of benefits from three perfectionism workbooks she previously talked about, let's talk about now some solutions from these authors' perspectives. Keep in mind that what we talk about may be best processed through using the workbooks and talking with a therapist. Yeah. So the first one we're going to talk about is the Perfectionism Workbook by Taylor Neuendorp. He says the obstacles for overcoming perfectionism are feelings of inadequacy in connection with being imperfect, also losing a sense of purpose and identity when embracing imperfection. So as I kind of talked about earlier, uh, you know, seeing myself as flawed is is a big part of feeling like you're losing your sense of identity. Mm -hmm. And that's really vulnerable, but it's something that's necessary for your healing. There's also difficulty tolerating uncertainty, which can create a catastrophizing mindset. There's a fixed mindset being set in your ways of thinking, an unwillingness to try new ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And per for perfectionists, you know, learning how to have a growth mindset is really hard. Um, losing the benefits and rewards resulting from perfectionism. So as I talked earlier with my social perfectionism, it was really hard to give up because I did enjoy learning about various social skills. And, and ultimately, I think I will never stop having that hunger to learn about social skills. Mm. However, um, there was also another reward that was more toxic. Every time I got more social emotional intelligence, I'd get this praise of, wow, you're, I can't tell you're autistic. Wow, yeah, yeah. you're you're such an overachieving autistic. And right, right. And I, I think that I was scared of losing that praise. Mm. But that was praise that I didn't feel benefited me as somebody who wanted to rebel against ableism. Yes. And then the last one is perseverating on failures and mistakes instead of celebrating positive outcomes, which for people with autism, that is a easy trap to fall into. Mm -hmm. So Neuendorp recommends a lot of mindfulness activities to be aware of these perfectionist tendencies, such as body scanning and meditation. There are lots of helpful journaling prompts that reflect on these obstacles and how you think you can overcome them. So a summary of Neuendorp's solutions for overcoming perfectionism involves embracing yourself as a flawed and perfect person, love who you are in the present moment rather than celebrate the person that you strive to be and seeing value in who you are as an imperfect person. And from an equity and inclusion perspective, when you have those unspoken rules that the dominant culture or people born with a certain type of privilege put on you, that is reinforcing perfectionism. Mm. When you embrace yourself as a flawed, imperfect person, when you tell yourself that you're gonna love who you are, in the present moment and seeing mm -hmm. value in who you are as an imperfect person, you're ultimately rebelling against stigma. Mm. Redefining your values and goals. Make sure they are flexible and realistically attainable, such as SMART goals. Now, I talked about earlier that 
I'm very perfectionist when it comes to my to-do list. And I put on so much unnecessary anxiety and stress on myself because it's like, I want to be productive the whole day. And I don't allow myself to relax. I don't allow myself to go outside, have a hobby. Uh, you know, there, there were points in time where I didn't really have much of a social life. But to be honest, crossing things off my to-do list was either a way to uh, avoid having a social life or deal with, you know, people are at work and I'm on summer break and I right. got to entertain myself somehow. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I, I had a lot of things that I wanted to get done before grad school and it was really tough. And so instead of getting hard on myself, I accepted, okay, uh, it's not going to happen. Right. What are the, what are the stakes and consequences that are going to happen if I don't do this thing? Well, mm -hmm. when it's self-directed, really nothing. And so then I, I started uh, stepping down, you know, okay, well, here's my high perfectionism expectation. If I can't achieve that, what is the minimum goal I want to achieve in this month? And, yeah. and so I think part of goal setting that's really important is look at the goal and then chunk the goal out. Mm. What is, what is the, you know, I, I call it, um, so here's the minimum basic bare bones goal of what I want to achieve with this, with this project. Mm -hmm. And then here's a sort of mild overachievement, like great if you do this, but not a big deal if you don't. Okay. And then the last tier is like overachievement going above the moon, sure. uh, part of it. And so what I tell myself is if I at least reach my minimum goal, then I feel good about myself. The other thing that my uh, somatic therapist is helping me work with is the idea of flow. And mm. so uh, when I get really rigid about like, I want to cross off all these things on my to-do list in this one day, I'm in my head yeah. and I'm ignoring my body. And sometimes when I'm not achieving the goals I need to, it's because my body needs something and mm -hmm. needs to slow down. And so my somatic therapist was like, do you trust that you will get those things done? And I said, yes. And she mm. goes, does it really matter if you get it done by this date? And I said, no. And so she said, it's important that when you wake up in the morning, you know, feel in your body how you feel related to that goal. Mm. And what in your body do you want to do that day? Maybe yeah. it's not taking on the whole thing and hyper fixating. Sure. Uh, maybe. And, and so we call it flow. So the metaphor we used is I'm on a surfboard and rather mm. than like swimming to shore, I'm letting the waves guide me back to the shore. So it's a natural flow of, I'm going to get there. I'm going to mm -hmm. get it done. But it's not going to happen at a pace that's rushed. So that's helped me to, to understand what it means to be flexible with my goals. Um, then there's building a window of tolerance for discomfort when it comes to mistakes, failure, and slight disapproval. And again, I think the concept of failing forward is, is really important for that. Right. And then lastly, um, setting boundaries with people that reinforce perfectionist standards and behavior. Okay. So another workbook is the CBT workbook for perfectionism. And there are a series of chapters here that work on specific obstacles related to perfectionism. The chapters are from fear to courage, from self-criticism to self-compassion, from procrastination to getting things done, from busy to mindfully present, from people-pleasing to being assertive, 
from anger to peace. I love that one. From criticizing to accepting others, from guilt to self-care, and from shame to connection. Each of these chapters focuses on journaling, which I'm a big fan of, about each of these obstacles and using cognitive behavior therapy techniques to shift a person struggling with perfectionism into a place of empowerment. Making peace with imperfection breaks down the obstacles of each type of perfectionism and provides journaling prompts for how to overcome each one. In chapter three, which is called Journey of Recovery, Dr. Cohen recommends adopting a recovery model, which includes not proclaiming that you are cured of perfectionism, which is ironically a perfectionist standard. Interesting. Re and, and it goes back to, I think, social perfectionism or talking mm -hmm. about like if you have a, a certain privileged identity and wanting to treat people perfectly, mm -hmm. it's just never going to happen. Right. And so, uh, so what a lot of people say is if you feel that you have arrived, that's perfectionism and it mm. prevents you from growing. So I like, I like that idea that, um, don't ever proclaim that you're perfect. Don't ever proclaim sure. that you've arrived somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next thing is redefining goals and values from a perfectionist standard to a reasonable average standard. And he calls it practicing moderation, which I was talking about earlier. It's about like, what is your level one goal? What is your level two goal? What is your level three goal within that project that you're trying to achieve? And, and I definitely think that the idea of what it means to be average is so foreign because for, for perfectionists, perfectionism is your average, but it's not the reality. And so I think my husband's done a really good job of talking about like, okay, when you have this goal, this is a perfectionist standard of that goal. What's an average standard of that goal? And that, yeah. and and I think it helps because when you have that high standard, you get into that black and white thinking of like mm -hmm. it it is this and it is nothing else. And, right, all or nothing. Yeah. And and I will say this too. Um, I've had students who like they don't want to turn in their artwork because they're afraid like I'm going to judge them, of course, or grade them in a mm -hmm. in a really strict way. But mm -hmm. some of these students that feel that way are like. They have the level of realism that I do. <laughs> and so what I tell them is like, you could turn in a subpar project and you're still going to get an A. And, and I, and I show them, like, I'll raise my hand up high and I'll say, here's your standard. And then I lower my hand and I go, here's my standard. Yes, exactly. And so I think like, it's ironic where like, I'm able to recognize in, that in my students, but I'm not able to do that for myself. So that's why oh, it's helpful sure. to have 100%. like somebody else go like, all right, like we need you here and it's okay if you're here. If you yes. go above and beyond, great, but that's not what the bar we're holding you to. Yeah. Uh, then there's building a window of tolerance when it comes to disapproval and failure, which involves tolerance and patience, developing a growth mindset when it comes to challenges in life. And lastly, establishing the guiding virtues in your life, which for him is respect, authenticity, courage, self-control, prudence, which is self-control on the basis of reason, empowerment, empathy, objectivity, foresightedness, and scientific thinking. Mm -hmm. So I want to make it clear that overcoming perfectionism is not an overnight process. Mm -hmm. It took me at least two years of using workbooks and therapy to heal a significant chunk of my perfectionism struggles. And I still struggle with perfectionism to this day. Yeah. And I will also say like, I didn't even really think about healing my perfectionism until I was 30. 
Mm. So that's 30 years of struggling with perfectionist tendencies until yeah. getting to the point of being like, wow, this isn't healthy. What am I going to do about it? Yeah. I still struggle with perfectionism to this day. I have a lot of mindsets that are unconsciously perfectionist, but I know the root cause of why they're there. And I have strategies to address them mainly in the realm of mindfulness. All right. So let's transition for a bit. Uh, let's talk about perfectionism as it relates to students in the classroom. So Nicole, how do you support students with autism that struggle with perfectionism in your class? Well, as we talked about earlier, uh, we worked in perfectionist schools. Um, you high know, achieving, just, yeah. High yeah, achieving high achieving. Creates uh, its own pressures, yeah. Yeah, and and again, I I think talking to many of my coworkers at multiple different schools, teachers rarely are promoting that. Mm. And and you know, we were talking about honors and AP classes. That's a whole different beast. It's yes. not that the teacher is is has that value. It's just what the expectation of the class is, especially mm -hmm. if you want to get college credit. Sure. So I, so I think it's it's less about that it's perfectionist, but it's more about it's the challenge creates this fear of being perfect. Yeah. Um, I have worked with a lot of neurotypical teen artists that are extremely perfectionist about their artwork. This has a lot to do with being detail oriented, having high standards on the look of the artwork and the grade they get and how peers might judge them for their creative skills. And one thing that I've noticed, especially with like middle school and high school art kids is they want to get it figured out in their head before they put it down on paper. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you notice this, but it's like they put it down, but then something goes wrong and then they ball it up and throw it away. And I can't tell you how many students I've had where literally it's like the day before the deadline and they're like, I'm going to start over. And I'm like, no, oh my God, no. I not mean, because idea. it's like, you know, we have two or three weeks to work on a project. And then the day before you're like, I'm starting over. Right. And so, so what I do as a teacher is I step in and I say, okay, well, before you go there, let's talk about how you can salvage this. And, and the big thing I tell my students is there's a puberty stage of your artwork. It's this sort of middle okay. awkward part of your artwork where sure. you can't tell if it's going to go good or bad. And I said, but you got to just push through because when you finish it, you might go, wow, this turned out better than I thought it would. Okay. So, so you got to just have faith in yourself and faith in the piece rather than just starting over. Because okay. if you get into that habit of balling it up, throwing away and trying again and again, you're not building creative problem solving resilience. And so mm. that's where uh, I think that's the most important skill that I want to teach, especially for those perfectionist students. Now, some students, when I intervene that way, they'll go, wow, thank you so much. I didn't know what to do. And others are like, nope, I'm going to take it home and work all night, pull an all-nighter, get it done. And they do get it done. And so yeah, I, I just kind of- not good for their body and they're not good for their mind. It's you know? not, but I don't have control as a teacher. Sure, sure. And then they're, I don't know. And then sometimes like I've had students that'll just slap their project in front of me and they're like, well- I'm just going to turn it in because this thing sucks and I don't care. And I, and I look at it and I go, it doesn't suck at all. It, it's good. Yeah. You know? And, and so it's just so hard. And yeah, it's funny and, how we uh, have our own standards. Yeah. 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 And, and what I, and I, what I also try to tell my students is like, there is always going to be somebody better than you. That's just the reality of the art world. But sure. instead of being afraid and instead of judging yourself, like 
build a relationship with that peer and say, Hey, yeah. I, I admire that you did this. How did you do that? Okay. You know, so, so instead of creating that distance because of fear and shame and ego, build a connection, build mm. that networking, mm. use your peer as a teacher. Hmm. And chances are that student would be really honored to be sought out for help. Yeah. So there's a lot of struggles. And so I try to help out with that. Now, the ironic thing is I haven't worked with students with autism that struggle with perfectionism. The struggle that I tend to have is that um, they want to do their creative style and do it on their terms. Right. And they, they're not attached to impressing others or getting a good grade. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's gotten to the point where it's like, I'm going to free draw and there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, you try to talk to them, you say, okay, well, this is the expectation of the project, how we're going to meet the expectation. They're like, I don't care about meeting the expectation. And I go, okay, well, nothing I can do about it. That tends to be more of a struggle, which I don't feel is a reflection of perfectionism. No, but I do yes, think it it, yeah. it comes from fear of I don't want to try this project that's going to get me out of my comfort zone and possibly make me mm -hmm. feel like I'm going to make artwork that isn't going to be great and people right. are going to judge me. Right. I think a lot of the perfectionism and staying in the comfort zone when it comes to teenagers is that desire to impress peers, mm -hmm. and so there's that rebellion of like, that's not my style. Right. And I want to do my style because it's a fear reaction of, I don't want to make imperfect work. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to overcome, but I think it's, it's an, a very important lesson to teach. Yeah. Um, so I've had non-autistic students with, uh, non-artistic students with autism mm -hmm. that had anxiety about the process of making art because art is an open-ended experience. Yeah. Um, so there might've been perfectionism about doing the steps, right. When they didn't know what to do, they froze up. And so I had to give them a lot of support on a step-by-step -step task. So mm. I think that for them, it's less about like, oh, I want to make a pretty image that, you know, builds my portfolio, makes me feel proud of myself. And more, like you said earlier, I want to get an A. I have no idea how to do that yeah. if I don't have a step-by-step -step way of doing it. And, right. and the way that I describe these types of autistic artists to other people is it's the difference between going to Michael's and buying a craft that gives you explicit instructions like this mm -hmm. is the product you're going to get and these are the steps you take to get sure. there versus fine art, which is you have a blank piece of paper, you have creative freedom, there's no steps, just go from there. That level of open-endedness is so stressful for people with autism. Sure. Yeah. And and that need for structure and routine and predictability is extremely challenged in an art mm. class. For some things, you know, I, I do yeah. think uh, autistic artists do really well in digital art classes. But yeah, I mean, that that's a very, very big part of the struggle. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, both autistic and neurotypical students struggle with time management. So there's this issue where there's an obsession with details and the fear of turning an imperfect work causes them to not meet deadlines. Now, if there's something that really pisses me off because kids are like, oh, are you going to judge me if I if I don't, you know, if I don't turn in this beautiful piece? I'm like, I don't sure. care if you turn in the, this beautiful piece of work. I care that you turn it in. Yeah. You know, and and 
I have these really blunt conversations with my students where I'm like, literally, the only way that you fail my class is if you don't turn stuff in. Right. And I'm like, that matters to me way more than how your artwork looks. And right. and I and I get so annoyed when a kid fails my class because I saw them do the work. Right. But they don't turn right. it in. Right. So anyway. Yeah. And then uh, I, I did teach um, AP art. The So the way that a, a college AP art class is run at the high school level is you create a body of work over the span of the whole year. And the aim is around 10 to 12 pieces of artwork, which is a lot to ask of a high school student. Yeah. And what I tend to see is a lot of lax, you know, oh, I've got the whole year and right. I can hang out with my friends and sure. I'll do whatever I want and I can be perfect, detail oriented. And then second semester comes around and they're stressed out and they're crying because they're running out of time. And so yeah. when I taught that class, I was very big about time management. And especially because, you know, that's not always a strength for neurodiverse kids. So what I did is I'd say, okay, by fall break, you need three pieces. Yes. By spring break, you need nine pieces. Mm -hmm. So there was flexibility within those two months of like, you can make big pieces, you can make small pieces, but you need to have three. Yeah. So, you know, so then that way that it's, it's, it's reaching a checkpoint. Yeah, and I, deadlines, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. and, and when they do their reflections, uh, you know, after critique, I do ask them, how's your time management going? Yeah. And the other thing I tell my students, like if I see that I, I have a perfectionist kid that's very detail oriented, I tell them, do not make big pieces, go small. Mm -hmm. um, when I student taught, I had a student who she was like that. Her drawings were tiny maybe five inches by six inches, but that's mm -hmm. what worked for her. And she mm -hmm. was able to, you know, meet the deadlines. And, and I do think that the college board wants to see, you know, um, experimentation, growth, getting out of your mm -hmm. comfort zone. So working big can be helpful, but not mm -hmm. if that's not how you work, you know, right. some people just cannot work fast when it's big. So I think that, um, that's what I really like talking about. And the other thing I, I'll say is like, all right, so do, do you have after school commitments? Do, do you play a sport? Are you part of a club? Are you in marching band? Mm -hmm. Do you have a job after school? Because that impacts your time management. Because if, if art class is the only day you have time to make art, that has a very big impact on the decisions you make. And, and perfectionist kids have a really hard time seeing that time management flow. And, and I tell them, it's not about being ashamed of being a perfectionist. It's about working with your perfectionism rather than against it by working with certain materials, working with, um, you know, certain sizes. And I tell them, like, if you're going to be perfectionist about your work, Maybe don't be experimental when it comes to working with a different material or working yeah. bigger. Work right. with what you know and strengthen the technical ability of what you know. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, going back before, and I think that this is so important, we, we talk about having transparent conversations between teachers and students. Mm -hmm. I cannot begin to emphasize enough that a student makes up in their mind, like, if I don't make the best work ever, I'm going to get a B. Yeah. But their, their quality of work is definitely an A. 
important to talk to them about it and say, even if you're not doing hot, you're still doing good. Yeah. And they don't always know that. So how about you, Brett? What was your experience supporting students with autism that struggled with perfectionism? Well, again, this was, you know, not only people on the spectrum that were in my classroom, but uh, neurotypical kids. And the tendency was, because they're perfectionists, is to not turn any work in, right? We talked about um, how frustrating that is for a teacher because we know that they were working on it. We've seen pieces of it. And then when it's due, we get nothing, right? As opposed, you know, so having a zero in the grade book versus having, you know, um, a D in the grade book is huge in terms of total points at the end of the day. So, you know, what do you do in that situation? So you try to help the student try to take the project or the essay or whatever it is into smaller chunks, just like you said, right? And then if, if that's not working, then we try to extend time or modify assignments to make sure that they can, you know, have those incremental goals achieved and then say, okay, I'm done with this. I'm not looking back anymore. I'm not editing. I'm not revising anymore. I'm moving on to the next piece and just help them to have timelines and goals and to turn the work in. Mm -hmm. Right. And the other thing is, you know, you try to, in your classroom, try to create that safe space as we talked about to try something new, right. To, to expand your skills, to expand your thinking and to um, have an environment that is okay with failure. Failure is okay. Cause that means that's, that's evidence of growth. You tried something and it didn't work. So from that experience, what are you going to do next time? Yeah. Yeah. And, and those things are probably more important learning opportunities than, you know, doing everything really well. And the funny thing that I was thinking about is like, what I notice a lot is if I have a kid with an IEP or a 504, basically a neurodiverse kid, and I have a parent, and I don't want to say the parent is perfectionist, but I think the parent has a fear of failure. And, and it's usually like, they know that their child is not artistic. And they're like, oh my God, or, or maybe their child has really severe anxiety or they have a health issue that makes it tough for them to always be in the classroom. And so what's funny is like the parent is freaking out, but the kids just like, ah, I don't care. Like, and it's not that they don't care about their work, but, but they're not, they're very accepting about not being perfect and they just yeah. go with the motions of it. And so I think it's so humbling because I'll tell the parent, like, this kid was doing great. And granted, they're not getting an A, sure. but I, I I, always try to emphasize, like, wow, this kid is just fearless mm -hmm. when it comes to trying things that they know they're not going to do well in. And I, and I try to focus on that as a strength. And then the parent starts to relax a bit and goes like, oh, okay. And then they go, well, are they going to pass? Are they going to pass your class? And I go, yeah, I'm not going to, like, you know, as long right, as they right. turn in their work like that, you Gotta know, I will work, be yeah. on them if they don't turn in their work. But I'm like, you know, if they're if they're showing up, they have a good attitude, they're doing the best they can, they're going to do fine. And so, you know, again, it's it's having that transparent conversation. And and I, you know, and I come up to those students and I say, God, like, I really ap appreciate your fearlessness. And they look at me and they go, I'm not afraid. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. And so I don't know. I, I think that it, it's just funny how that that works out. Yeah. So how about you, Nicole? How did your how does your perfectionism impact your work as a teacher? Okay. So so I I have a funny story to share related to this because 
you'd think that as somebody who has a lot of perfectionism tendencies, that I would be perfectionist with my teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Uh, I think that like for me, I have high standards when it comes to like, again, getting a lesson plan out by a certain time, making sure that it's clear enough. And if it's not clear, I get student feedback and I tweak it. But but I don't go into my class with this attitude of it's the perfect lesson and kids yeah. are going to learn and, and sure. you know, because you which which never happens. There's it never no happens. And, and I can't tell you how many times teachers are like, oh, my so excited about this and then the kids don't get it and then you're exactly. like I failed exactly. but there was this incident that happened to me while I was um in in college that made me realize I can't be perfect about how things go so I I did a a year uh master's degree in art administration and the program as well as the undergrad art education students we all went to South Africa and at the time, I was kind of like questioning my desire to be a teacher. And I had mm -hmm. TA'd for the art ed professor. And I said, uh, and so we, we were getting ready to run workshops for the locals in a in a very small town called Kwakwa, uh, which is two, a two and a half hours away from Johannesburg. And and I came up to my professor and I said, would it be okay if I if I was also part of this? Because I'm thinking I, I want to be an art teacher. And he goes, absolutely. So so I'm with all the art ed students and and we're prepping all the materials. Mm -hmm. The next morning we wake up, we're all excited. It's an hour drive to get from our uh, cottages to this area that we were going to teach the workshops. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, one of my classmates goes, did we remember to bring the supplies? Oops. <laughs> and we had two vans. And so like one one of them like goes behind the van and is like, nope. It's no, not there. And then uh, and then we're like, maybe it's in the other van. It's not in the other van. And so we, we all looked at each other. And we're like, okay. what are we going to do? And we came up to our professor, you know, kind of like our heads down. And we're like, Sheepish. Yeah. we forgot our supplies. Yeah. And we thought he was going to be mad at us. But he just looked at it and he, he looked at us and he goes, figure it out. That's what you know, that's what teaching is. Wow. So we all like sat together. We're like, all right, we always have personal art supplies. So what are we going to do there? And I vividly remember um, my ex-boyfriend who is very passionate about teaching. He's very good at what he does. He had a panic attack. Mm. He was terrified yes. of how these locals were going to view him mm -hmm. and how he was going to do a good job. And he's like, I have no idea how I'm going to do this if I don't have the supplies. Meanwhile, I'm just like, Ah, I'm not getting graded. Like, let's just see how this goes. Yeah. And we pulled it off. Wow. And these locals were just the nicest. They were just happy to be there and learn and connect with Americans. Like we weren't judged at all. And so I'm going into this experience being like, okay, I'm sure I did things incorrectly. And I walked up to the art ed professor and I said, can you give me feedback on what I can do to improve? And he looked at me and he goes, I think you should be a teacher. Oh, wow. Nice. And I, and at that moment, I was like, oh, my God, All maybe right. I should be a teacher. Yeah. But like seeing my ex-boyfriend have a Panic. mental breakdown yeah. over things not going perfectly, mm -hmm. it taught me in that moment, like, don't accept perfection because shit can go wrong. Right. There, you know. 
and and it did go wrong when I did become a teacher. Mm-hmm. But I think what I did is is I was very particular about prepping the lesson. But the yeah. the moment the students got in my classroom, the moment I turned on the projector and started teaching, I said, it's out of my hands. Okay. And yeah. and I think that that really helped me to feel successful. Mm-hmm. And I also felt that I think my attitude when things don't go perfectly as a teacher is as long as kids are learning and as long as the project is getting done, it really doesn't matter how it gets done or even if things get a little bit delayed. It, it, it's about that creative problem solving. It's about thinking on the fly. Yeah. And and so I'm just so grateful for that incident in South Africa because I think it it really shaped my mindset as an educator. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's you know, it it's easy to have these amazing lesson plans, but man, it's humbling when it doesn't work. Oh, definitely. Um, but but I do think um kids are not gonna judge you. I mean, the worst thing that happens is they get on their phone, they but once you have it figured out, you you just redirect and and I do think in advanced classes or at a college level class, like kids are patient with you. Yeah. As you figure it out. You know, as yeah. long as you you're you're problem solving and they see that you're problem solving and that we're moving forward and we're not, you know, the teacher's not like I failed. Right. They don't care. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it that's a different podcast right there. So, yeah, yeah. Know. Yeah, definitely. Now I will say, um, now I don't I don't know if this is totally related to perfectionism, but I'm very structured when it comes to, you know, classroom management and definitely mm-hmm. when it comes to student safety. Mm-hmm. And I've had For a sure. lot of I, I've had a couple of coworkers that said that my my need for structure and routine in in a classroom is definitely a reflection of my autism, but they said that it's a strength sure. because there are neurotypical teachers who do not go above and beyond when it comes to safety like I do. Yes. So I remember uh, we did our fire drill, and like we you know we go outside on a fire drill and everybody's lax about it, and and this was during COVID, and they asked us to social distance. And I was a drill sergeant. I got my student, my high school students, <laughs> freshmen to seniors, and I said, "You go down in this field. You go six feet apart. Yep. You go in a straight line." And I and I only got away with it once, but like they did it. Yeah, they were in shock the first time. Otherwise, <laughs> oh I, yeah. Well, the second time it's, it's like now nah, she's just being not, crazy. It's not that I. It's not that they rebelled against me. I think it was more like I saw that other people were being relaxed oh, about it. Up, and then I okay. I let go. But that first day, I was yes. like, social distance, yes. six feet apart. Yes. And and you know, when it comes to like emotional safety or physical safety, I, mm-hmm. I step in and I make sure like, you know, everybody's safe. So I don't think that that's a bad thing. I do think you can go maybe a little too far with it, but when mm-hmm. it comes to student safety, I don't think teachers can do anything wrong with that. Yeah. Um, yeah I and mean, then, it's, it's, yeah, for sure. And then I think like my struggles with social perfectionism definitely had an impact when it came to sensitive student situations, such as discipline, accidentally saying something offensive, addressing mental health concerns, mandatory reporting uh that was incredibly stressful no it so is, I, yeah, it I, is. I i think like you know i had people that said 
you know, oh, well, you can make mistakes and learn from that, but it never feels that way. It feels like every mistake is going to trigger the wrath of a parent or is going to harm a student. And, and so you feel like you walk on this tightrope. And again, when you're autistic, you're highly anxious and you're a social perfectionist, it's scary. But I think that's why I, I did a really good job self-advocating and saying, I want to understand how to do this correctly. Teach me how to do that. Yeah. All right. So lastly, let's talk about an autistic employee struggling with perfectionism in the workplace. Brett, what can an employer or coworker mentor do to support someone with autism that has perfectionist behaviors? Well, it all kind of depends on what the task in the work environment is, right? So it's understanding what that is first. But then, as we've talked about in previous episodes, it's finding supports at work, communicating with supervisors, communicating with trusted groups or others to help clarify tasks and provide example, examples of acceptable results. So, you know, in your classroom, you're talking about, you know, standards and where the bar is, right? Those, that same metaphor can be used, I think, in the workplace as well. So here's our standard of this task and what needs to be done. I've seen what you've done. You do a great job. It's up here, right? You're, you're higher in terms of completing this task, but the time you take to, to get there is too long, right? So if you can bring that down, right, then we can be more efficient in this. And it's it just kind of rationalizing what the tasks are and clarifying tasks, I think would be um, a great help. Yeah, I think that the whole theme of this podcast is about have transparent conversations, clarify expectations, yes, use some norming conversations to make sure that you're on the same page. Because when mm -hmm. you don't, then the employer and the employee are going to be misaligned about what the right what the uh, baseline expectations are for the project. Right. How about you? What's your perspective on this, Nicole? Uh, so I think the biggest thing, create expectations of safety and compassion. The, you want the employee to feel seen for who they are and that they don't need to use perfectionism to be accepted into co company culture, which, you know, as I said before, when, when you know that you're othered and mm -hmm. you are afraid of being alienated and marginalized, you know, you, you do use perfectionism as a way to be accepted into company culture. And it's very cathartic to have mm -hmm. a person in a position of authority to just say, it's okay. You're yeah. safe. Yeah. Be you, uh, you don't have to reach this high bar. And the problem with reaching that high bar is then everybody expects that all the time. Right. So then there's no wiggle room to be human. And, and let's right. be honest, life happens. There's going to be stress. There's going to be mental health adversity. And those things definitely cause you to not do your best work. Mm -hmm. And and I would think that a good employer would understand that, but also make sure that, you know, we're getting things done. Yes. Um, so also support accommodations and provide neurodiverse friendly workplace expectations. Sometimes perfectionism is a form of masking if there is fear about disclosure yeah. and self-advocacy for accommodations. When we were at the Neurodiversity in the Workplace Conference a couple months ago in D.C., uh, one of the things they talked about is to provide an equitable workplace, make sure you support accommodations for everybody and make that known to everyone rather than uh, focusing on one person specifically. So then that way the the autistic person right. feels like they're part of the culture. Yeah. Um, equity and inclusion training goes a long way. 
you know, I talk about my racial equity training a lot. And, and what I love about it is they talk about these terms and the way that you support and communicate equitably with people in a way, there's no specific training on ableism to the extent that, that racism training happens. And honestly, I feel like there's so many things I've learned from racial equity training that I can apply to any any group. Yeah. Uh, and and I say that from the perspective of intersectionality. I am not saying that like a person of color's experience of marginalization is the same as an LGBTQ plus person sure. or a neurodiverse person. But again, it's just the skills of understanding what systemic oppression is, what privileges, fragility, uh, how to communicate effectively to make a safe and inclusive workplace. Mm-hmm. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Clarify reasonable expectations with tasks, what the employer sees as acceptable work versus what the person with autism sees. Uh, we talked about, you know, lowered expectations. Right. You know, task organization can be really helpful. Prioritize tasks and mm-hmm. expectations with tasks, step by step execution reasonable deadlines um, that reduces perfectionism overwhelm when completing more than one task. And, and when you think about it from the perspective of teaching, we talk about chunking, you know, so you've got this big essay. So what are the steps you need to do and which steps do you need to complete by a deadline? So what I do to help myself get organized with tasks is I have a whiteboard. I love using whiteboards. And so I break down, you know, all right, I have two graduate classes, I have stuff for the podcast, and I have personal stuff. And so I write down all of the tasks that I need to do. Now, sometimes that can feel a little visually overwhelming. And there are uh, time management matrix boxes where you can fill out like, is it important? Is it urgent? Is it not? And that can help you out. But what I also do is, you know, so I have my whiteboard, I have my project, I list when it's due. And then I also have a standard calendar and I color code. So, you know, some people use a planner. I thought about using a planner, but what I did instead is I I bought a calendar and I color coded all of my assignments and I wrote down when things are due. So then that way I have a visual cue of when things are due. And then if you want from there, you can say, you know, all right, on this day, I'm going to work on this. Yes. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't like. Mm Uh, you know, sometimes I, I go, well, today I'm going to do this, but then life happens and I'm not sure. able to achieve that. So then what I do instead is like, okay, well, I know I have Sunday until Sunday to get it done. Yeah. If I can't do it today, when I'm going to do it. So there, so it's, it's flexibility without procrastination. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, for me, I feel like I can't function on the, unless I have that kind of structure. And I feel like I'm very good about that. But for somebody who maybe struggles with that, I do think it's really good to talk to a mentor or an employer to just get an understanding of like how to be on pace. And and like you were talking about earlier, perfectionists really struggle with time management. And so how do we break down not only like what is a reasonable timeline, but also how do you modify how you normally do things so then you can be more efficient about it? So going mm-hmm. back to art, we talked about if you if you're super detailed, don't work really big. Yes, exactly. So, you know, so how can you be more efficient with your work projects if you are somebody who takes a very long time? Yeah. 
And then lastly, right. uh, reflect on relationship to perfectionism in terms of employee work ethic. You know, some employers struggle with perfectionism and they become micromanagers and that reinforces employee perfectionism. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's important for employers to understand what perfectionism means to them and how it impacts their their relationships with their employees, as well as how it impacts the workplace culture. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, how about advice that you might have for autistic professionals related to perfectionism? I, I definitely recommend use the workbooks that we talked about to reevaluate your perfectionist expectations. Mm -hmm. Talk to people about getting on the same page for expectations. Uh, what's really helped for me is a chain of command plan. Mm. Read books about autism masking as a way to overcome perfectionism. You can get those resources from our episode about autism masking. Have healthy executive functioning strategies to organize perfectionist tendencies. Set healthy boundaries when it comes to work-life balance. Set a timer if a perfectionist tendency turns into a hyperfixation. Mm. And again, I think when you're when you're meeting with your employer and you're talking about like, how do you work with the perfectionism and how do you engage with your project in a way that it's not going to take a lot of time? The same mindset needs to be applied when it comes to relaxation, going mm. outside, moving your body, you know, cooking, taking care of your family. Life yeah. happens and you need to be able to carve out time and energy for those things. And perfectionism can really get in the way of that. So that's yeah. why you know, setting a timer can be helpful. Or again, talking about like that, that tier list of at the base level, at the minimum expectation, this is what we need from you. And then what's going to go above and beyond. Mm -hmm. A growth mindset when it comes to receiving feedback can be really helpful mm -hmm. and not reacting to feedback in a catastrophizing way. Yes. One thing that has helped me tremendously with receiving vulnerable feedback is have a notebook and write it down. Mm -hmm. And 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 don't use the notebook as like a venting thing, like, sure. you know, oh, this person hates me or whatever. Be very objective and neutral about the feedback. And sometimes it mm -hmm. helps to get that feedback in writing. Like when we get evaluated as teachers, we get a sure. written report of yes, uh, strengths and areas of growth. Mm -hmm. And so the recommendation generally or, or what works for me is write down the main points of areas of growth step away from it for like 24 hours and then come back to it, reread it and then reflect on it, journal about it. Well, how does it make you feel? Yeah. Uh, how, you know, does it make you feel good? Does it make you feel kind of yucky? What feedback do you want to apply? What feedback do you want to let go? What I have found is when I write down the feedback and have time to process it by myself, I'm not as reactive to somebody's tone or their words making me feel ashamed. Mm. All right. Yeah. Uh, imperfection is acceptable in the workplace, especially yes. when it's your first job. It For is sure. so hard to get out of that mindset because when you're a perfectionist, you live in fear that if you don't do things perfectly, you're going to lose your job. Oh, that's and true. I think when it comes to teaching, like, Everybody mm. acknowledges you're not going to do it perfectly, especially when it comes to, you know, sensitive student situations. Sure, sure. And you're probably going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. But as long as it's coming from a good place of helping kids and, you know, you're not doing anything that makes kids feel unsafe, right. people are going to be there to help you out. And so I think that it's important for autistic employees to understand that your employer is not expecting you to be perfect. 
Yeah. And and that feedback is going to ultimately build your confidence in the workplace so that you can do better. It's so hard to come in with that mindset because it makes you feel so vulnerable. But it's mm -hmm. that understanding of like, I'm safe and I am cared for yeah. by not knowing how to do this correctly. Yeah, for sure. Uh, come into the workplace prepared to self-advocate for your needs including communication needs on mutually agreed upon expectations. And lastly, read about autism, anxiety, and depression as it relates to perfectionism. And we have podcast episodes on anxiety and depression, roughly, what, like two hours worth of we, content? We had a lot to say. Yeah, we had a lot to say. So I think that, uh, you know, everything, if you listen to this episode and then re-listen to the anxiety and depression episodes, you're probably going to find links and that will be Definitely. helpful. And that's going to be in our show notes as well. Yeah. All right. So we have come to the end of this podcast. So what we've talked about is what perfectionism is. We talked about the root causes of perfectionism. We discussed why people with autism tend to be perfectionists, the different types of perfectionism, and generally recommended solutions for addressing perfectionism. All right. Our next episode is autism and shame. Yep. We are approaching the end of our season we got two more episodes Ooh. left yes Woo! all right <laughs> follow understanding autism on instagram twitter and facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes i also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode subscribe to understanding autism on youtube and listen to us on spotify itunes google play etc like subscribe and leave a comment and if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. Until then, I am Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabillas. 